Hi, this is Amr Kaisi, author of Humbitious, The Power of Low Ego, High Drive Leadership. And you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Amir Kaisi. Dr. Amir Kaisi is an award-winning professor of healthcare administration at Trinity University. He's a certified executive and physician coach who works with top leaders to maximize their leadership potential. He's the author of the book, Intangibles, The Unexpected Traits of High-Performing Healthcare Leaders, which won a 2019 American College of Healthcare Executives Book of the Year Award at Trinity University. Dr. Kaisi teaches courses in leadership, professional development, and public speaking, and is the director of the executive program. Amir is an avid soccer fan. He lives in San Antonio, Texas with his wife and two teenagers, and is here to talk about his book, Humbitious, The Power of Low Ego, High Drive Leadership. Welcome, Amir. Hey, Bill. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be with you today. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Tell me, when you were growing up, who was somebody who influenced or inspired you? I have to say that it's my mother. I grew up in Beirut, Lebanon, and that's where my mother also grew up. My mother was actually the oldest of five. When she finished high school in 1960, it would have been totally normal if she had waited for her parents to find her a perfectly good husband and for her to become a stay-at-home mom. But instead, my mom told her father, my grandfather, that she actually wanted to go to college. Now think about that for a moment. College for a female in the 1960s in Lebanon, a country in the Middle East, that, that was a little bit unheard of. The reason she wanted to do that is because she had had big ambitions. She wanted to become a lawyer. Now, my grandfather resisted and he kept resisting for why? What will people say about us? Blah, blah, blah. But she kept on insisting and she kept on asking and asking until he finally relented. My mother actually went to law school and got her degree in 1965. Again, that is such a big deal back then for a young female, a young woman to do that. Then once she graduated, she quickly realized that she didn't want to practice law. It was a little bit too dry for her. And she had a connection at a not-for-profit orphanage. They invited her to come and work there. She fell in love with the work. She fell in love with working with kids who didn't have much. She ended up spending the rest of her career at that same not-for-profit orphanage. She went from direct caregiver all the way to the director of the main campus. She was an excellent manager. She achieved a lot of things. She helped expand the orphanage. So, so I like to start with this example because I believe that my mom had both humility and ambition, which is something that we're going to talk about a lot today. Excellent. Tell me, when you were growing up, though, you spent a lot of time at the orphanage yourself. You got to know these children. They were your friends. And you were seeing your mom as someone who was a manager at the orphanage and certainly a leader and someone who had a lot of influence there. I'm sure your mother had dreams of improving the place and helping the lives of all of the children there. What were some of the messages that you got about what's possible? When you're a child and you're in that situation and you see this example of leadership in front of you, you don't really appreciate it. You don't think about it much. It's only later on when I started studying leadership and I'm doing my own research as well as understanding the research of others that I start to see more more and more of these traits of high-performing leader, my mom had demonstrated that throughout her career. For me personally, as you said, going with my mom to work and spending time with the kids, especially summers, I would spend whole summers with them. I think what that 
taught me personally is empathy, the ability to see things from a different perspective, not to stay stuck in your own little bubble. We were middle-class, we were comfortable, we had everything we needed. And some of these kids had nothing, including both of their parents have passed or been given away by their parents. So it really teaches you to appreciate what you have, but it also allows you to see things from a different perspective. Just seeing my mom and her leadership style, again, did not appreciate it in the moment, but just seeing how she was able to balance the empathy and the compassion, but also holding people accountable for their actions. I saw her several times in her office holding people accountable. She always did it in a very respectful way, in a way that respected the dignity of the other person, but it was very clear. She, she set the tone and she clarified the expectation. You probably heard her use a tone or body language that you didn't necessarily hear at home. Absolutely. Yes. Although I would have to say that was also her parenting style. And, and this is a separate topic, but this is something that I've been thinking about and discussing with others, which is the overlap between leadership styles and parenting styles. I saw that with my mom and that even in how she treated me and my brother, along with my dad, they, they were both, I don't know if they did it intentionally or not, but they both believed in this balance between caring and challenging. This is something that I try to do with my kids right now in that in some situations you have to dial up the caring, but in other, th other situations, you have to dial up the challenging and sometimes we try to stay right there in the middle, balancing the two. So yeah, that was something that later on, reflecting on it, I, I start thinking about it. I'm like, huh, they did that really well. We've both met and know a lot of people who have a public persona of being incredibly effective and looked up to. And all of us have our challenges at home. It's like, wait a second, our children don't care at all. Our book has been cited. <laughs> they don't care at all that we are now at an executive level or spoken at these conferences. They just think of us as dad or as moms. It's a whole other thing. I don't think there's any more effective role or any other role where you need to be effective without a title as being a parent. I, I totally agree with you, Bill. I would say when I use that analogy between parenting and leadership, sometimes people think that the message is that we're trying to tell leaders to treat their team members like kids. That is not the message. Actually, what I would like to do is to treat my kids like adults. I would like to treat my kids like a leader should treat their team members, because when you start treating them like this, you again, hold them accountable for their actions, but still they know that they've got your unconditional love and support. Let's set the groundwork for this discussion, because a lot of people could easily think that they understand ambitious. Your premise is that leadership works best when it's the combination or fusion between ambition, competence, strength, and accountability with humility, compassion, kindness, and generosity. What was the example or moment that crystallized for you how each of these qualities amplified the other? I don't think there was like one aha moment where I saw the example of a person and I said, that's the leadership style. It probably was more small incremental steps that I took in my own research, as well as in studying the research of others. And what I try to do in my understanding of leadership is I try to base it on the research. I try to base it on the latest science and the latest evidence. The more articles I read and the more papers and books I read, the more I realized that if you want to achieve high performance for yourself, for your team, and for your organization, you need to combine humility and ambition. In short, you need to be ambitious, as I call it in the book. The reason for that is because humility keeps our feet on the ground by allowing us to have an accurate assessment of our own abilities, a good understanding of our strengths and weaknesses. Ambition, on the other hand, makes us reach for the stars and believe in our own greatness, which does not go against humility. 
but it allows us to believe in the greatness of the people who work with us. Humility on one side, if you have one or the other, neither one of these styles alone is conducive to high performance. The research shows it's, it's only when you have them together, then you have a powerful combination for a leader that wants to make a lasting impact. One of the fundamental aspects of humility is self-awareness. In so many areas of life, from getting hired to getting promoted to getting funded, the more visible and vocal you are, the more likely someone will say yes to help you get ahead. Let's take a poster boy for anti-humility, Travis Kalnick, Uber's founder. He not only created a frat boy fraternity culture and continued to get funded, but he was clueless about his misbehavior and the negative impact it had on others. Can you share your understanding of how that succeeded for as long as it did and rose to that level with his kind of toxic personality and lack of self-awareness? Yeah, this is an example that I talk about in the book. I did a lot of research on Uber as an organization, as well as on Travis Kalanick as the CEO of that organization for a long time. It clearly shows how, especially in the startup world, in that kind of culture, you can build a very successful product if you have the ambition. He certainly had a lot of drive, a lot of ambition, and we'll give him credit for that. But that success is going to be short-lived unless you balance it with the self-awareness and with the humility. So the product that Kalanick built with his team was a great product. We all love Uber. I mean, who doesn't love that user-friendly app that you call a car and it comes in five minutes and all of that. So the product was so good, but the company had an image problem because of the CEO, because of the way he behaved, because of the things that he said and, and how badly he treated other people, how out of touch with reality he appeared both in private and in public, there's this video of him berating an Uber driver. It's on YouTube. The listeners can go check it out. It's unbelievable how a CEO of his stature can behave in that way in public and not realize that he's conveying a very wrong model of leadership. So not surprisingly, his success was short-lived. When the company realized that they were having a problem with him, there was no problem with the product. The product was so good. They had a problem with him. And that's why his board ended up voting him out in and replacing them with a CEO that had better self-awareness and, and that balanced things out better. One of the things that I've read in your book was that he was on his way to a meeting where his leadership team was talking about the problems of his leadership. And it was right outside of that meeting where he berated an Uber driver who was complaining that the way that they had changed the formulas had greatly decreased his earnings and was videotaping him with his smartphone as Kalik just didn't care and chewed him out. When he was confronted with it just a few minutes later, he was shocked that he acted so badly, but still really had no appreciation for all of the thousands of decisions and actions and ways that he had contributed to creating that whole culture at his company. What was it that was significant about that example for you in helping people understand the importance of humility and self-awareness? That example is like the you know most impactful example that shows us how lack of self-awareness eventually catches up with you. As you describe the incidents, they are trying to tell him you're the problem. He's refusing to accept that he's the problem and someone shows him the video. And in that moment, he understands what's going on and he starts selling himself material terrible person, I'm a terrible person. Then he apologizes later on, but the behavior doesn't change. This is a pattern. All of the missteps that he's had as a CEO, and then that he would do something 
or the company would do something, then he's advised by his PR people that you have to apologize. And he apologizes in public. He sends one of those statements, but nothing changes. That's what self-awareness is all about, is understanding what you're good at, what you're not good at, but listening to feedback when others give you that feedback. When the world gives you feedback, you take that into consideration. Unfortunately for him, he did not. Fortunately, you work with many leaders, especially in healthcare and hospital administration. Can you share an example of how you've helped someone who's an ambitious manager become more self-aware, reflective, and effective without having to lose $20 billion of company value? Absolutely. Fortunately, leaders sometimes reach out on their own or they have someone who cares about them that much to reach out to an executive coach and, and have them work with it. Your question reminds me of the case of Jared, who was a young administrator who worked at a medium-sized hospital in the South. Jared was about to get promoted to become COO of the hospital, which is a big deal. But his boss, the CEO, knew that Jared was not ready for that unless he got some coaching. So they did reach out to me. I started working with Jared. And, and to give a little bit of context, Jared was brilliant very intelligent, very driven, poster child of ambition and wanting to achieve great things in his career. However, there was total lack of self-awareness, total lack of humility. First thing we did was we had him take an emotional intelligence assessment. It, it gives you a snapshot of where he was at that point in time as he was getting prepared to or considered to be a CEO. What that showed was very low scores on emotional self-awareness, very low scores on empathy, very low scores on impulse control, but very high scores on self-regard. He thought very highly of himself. When I talked with the team that worked with Jared, they all said he is so smart. He, you know, we, we like that he sets the vision and he wants to execute. But man, he doesn't listen to anyone. His meetings are like long monologues. He just walks in the meeting and he starts talking. It doesn't give anyone the chance to chime in, to offer their input. When we shared that information with Jared and also told him what other people thought of him, it was so amazing that he said that no one ever has told him that. This was the first time in his career that he became aware of his lack of self-awareness and of how he is coming across to other people. So based on his assessment and based on what we heard from his team members, we, we put a plan in place. We worked together for, for six months and slowly but surely, he started becoming more intentional about listening to others, about involving them in decision-making, about not being the first one to voice his opinion in a meeting, but rather wait till the end, till he, tell, he told others what he thought should be done. He started seeking feedback and when he got that feedback, he listened to it and he thanked the other person. And, and this didn't happen overnight. I don't want people to, to think that I am a man Bill and, and you take it and you become the best leader. This was hard work. And he said, this is the hardest thing I've ever done in my career. But the key with Jared is that he wanted to change because he realized and was told very clearly that if you're not going to change, the COO job is not going to be yours. So with hard work, with intention and with developing new habit, eventually the CEO saw that Jared had changed his leadership style and eventually he did get the job. What's encouraging about that is that it shows that people are able to change these aspects of themselves. It's rare talking about how Jared, who was the first time anyone had ever told him that and given him that feedback, it's rare that people change on their own. But with the help and support of others, like you described, he was very leveraged because he had an ambition that he wanted to achieve and achieving 
that new job title, he was very motivated to pay attention, was open to that. But it's rare that people change on their own to adopting these two aspects. Another example you mentioned in the book is Steve Jobs 2.0. I worked at Apple during the time that he was away and right as he came back in 1997. And it, it, it wasn't the person who I had heard horrifying stories of just blowing up in meetings. And it was really interesting. Talk about your perspective on what changed for Steve after he was ousted from Apple by John Scully, who he had brought in to help run the company. The Steve Jobs question comes up very regularly when we're talking humble leaders, because that is the pushback that people have. They always say, what about those leaders who did not have humility and empathy and compassion and still had great success? How do you explain that? The way I explain it is first, because I studied his career and I, as you explained, understood that actually there was a change in his career. So when he first started, that was his first stint at Apple. That was the time when he was, for lack of a better term, a jerk towards others. He was always brilliant. No, we're not discussing that, but he was a jerk. He treated others badly. He took credit for others' ideas. He threw people under the bus. Everything that we talk about in terms of bad leadership, for other reasons, he was ousted of his own company. Now, when that happened, he went on and he founded Next and Pixar, when that happened, he started gaining some new software. So sometimes the change happens because we told the story of Jerry, you're someone who cares about you says you need coaching and you get the coaching and you develop the self-awareness. At other times, it's tragic events like getting fired that help you build that self-awareness. And Steve Jobs himself admitted that the speech that, that he gave later on, and he said that this was bitter medicine, that getting fired was bitter medicine, but he said that's what the patient needed at that time, referring to himself. Now, when he came back to Apple in his second stint, many of the people who worked with him directly would tell you that there was a change in his leadership style. There was a little bit more humility. There was more listening to others, more giving credit to others, less demeaning comments. Now, we're not saying he became an angel after that, but he developed that self-awareness to know how to intentionally behave as a leader. If you really think about it, a lot of what Apple, as you said, built, most of the great inventions happened in the second step, not in the first step. That's when we got the iPad and the iPod and the iPhone and all of these great things that we use daily in our lives. So if we reflect on this example, the lesson from this example is Steve 2.0 still had the ambition and the drive and even a little bit of the narcissism that he's always had. But he complemented that with humility and self-awareness. Because of that, I believe he was able to do the great things he did. What I'm also hearing there, Amir, correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't have to be a perfect balance of humility and ambition. That a little bit of humility can go a long way in helping a leader go further. Absolutely. And it doesn't have to be a perfect balance, as you said, and the balance will look differently for different people. I, I like to think of it as, as points on a spectrum, and we're all trying to be closer to that sweet spot in the middle, but some of us are going to be more to the right. Some of us are more to the left and there's going to be situations where you need to dial up the humility and dial down the ambition, but there will be other situations where you need to bring in the ambition and maybe keep the humility at bay. We thought, obviously, the title of the book is Humbitious, and I'm a proponent for, for Humbitious Leadership, but we need to understand that it's not one style of leadership that works every time, everywhere, for everything. It's important to have that understanding. What about for people who lack the self-awareness, but say that you're, a manager comes to you after you've given a presentation, and he says, just for this, the purpose of this example, he says, I've worked with a great team. One of my colleagues is someone who is so ambitious, 
but won't take any feedback, won't collaborate, always thinks that they're right. What would be a suggestion you would have for being able to improve that relationship? Because as it is currently, the two division leaders don't work well together. There's always friction. It's hurting not only the relationship, but the company's ability to put out products, serve customers, and increase their ability to serve their market. What would you suggest that someone who's in a situation like that start with in order to build the relationship with someone else who they perceive that could use more of that balance? Yeah, that's a great question. The suggestion that I have is that when you want to sit down with that person and have that difficult conversation, especially a person that doesn't have the self-awareness as you when you want to give them the feedback, you give them that feedback in a way that shows how it impacts them and their success and not just how it's impacting the team. For example, let's say you have someone who doesn't listen in meetings and doesn't have the self-awareness to know that they do. When you sit down with them, you don't just tell them this behavior is not good because you're annoying other people and people can't work with you and all of that. The lack of self-awareness prevents them from understanding the impact of it. They'll be like, so what? That it's other people's problem. The way you want to frame feedback is your lack of listening is impacting your ability as a leader. It's a major barrier for you to maximize your potential as a leader and to go on to do great things in your career. When we frame it like that, we are more likely to get their attention and to have an opening there for them to start listening to that feedback and, and taking it to heart. It's a tough situation, but I believe there are ways that we can have those difficult conversations with these people. What have you observed either through your classrooms or your consulting and coaching work that has changed with the working remotely, where people are connecting more online with the people's ability to convey these elements of humility and ambition? It's definitely something that a lot of leaders are thinking about and are trying to find ways that they can do it. I, I would totally agree with any leader who says it's much harder now. If my team is remote and I don't see them every day, it's hard for me to connect with them and to check on them, to show them that empathy. I agree that it's harder, but I would say it's not impossible. If you and your team are still working remotely at this point in time and, and you're not seeing each other in the office, you have to be even more intentional about finding the those connections. So tell me more about that. There's this example of a young female leader, Rachel, who works in a large consulting company out on the East Coast. And prior to the pandemic, Rachel worked every day with her team members in person. Rachel is a ambitious leader, always went out of her way to show her team members that she cared, she checked on them, she always maintained and established strong personal relations with them. Then when the pandemic hit, all of the work became remote. So both Rachel and her team were working remotely and could not see each other anymore. Now, initially, Rachel was thinking, okay, it's impossible for me now to continue that leadership style that I have. When I had conversations with her, I said, it's harder, but it's not impossible. It is still possible to do it, but you have to be more intentional. Actually, you have to be especially intentional about connecting with people. One of the specific practices that I shared and, and that she adopted was to hold every day a one-hour Zoom meeting where her team members could just log in and out whenever they wanted. She made herself available for an hour in the morning. You might think it's a huge time commitment. This is the hour that we normally spend popping in into each other's offices and saying, good morning, how was your weekend? How are your kids? How are your parents? Right? So now in a remote setting, we have to be intentional and blocking. Her team members love that idea. Throughout that hour, people log in and log out. And it's just, hey, how are things going? How was your son? 
son's soccer game this weekend. I remember your mom is not doing well. How's she doing? They're connecting on some work-related issues, but it created a space where she could show empathy that connection to her team members, she could also show them her appreciation of their efforts and how hard it is to be doing the work that they're doing in, in a remote way. I also remember in your book, uh, you talked about one of the factors that makes it critical for people to adopt the ambitious approach is that they have less of a fear of failure. You cited the example of the marshmallow challenge, which is not the one where the, whether people, small children can delay gratification by not taking the marshmallow, but it's how big of a structure people could make by using, I think, spaghetti and marshmallows. And was it Sam Cable of London Business School who wrote this study? And he talked about the importance of this rapid prototyping challenge and not being afraid to fail. Talk more about the role of psychological safety and one or two things that people could look for to assess their environment and one or two things that people could use to improve their environment for this aspect of safety. Sure. Let's start with that marshmallow um, experiment that, that you just mentioned. Very briefly for the listeners who are not familiar with it, you're given some material like spaghetti sticks and yarn and a marshmallow and as a team to build the tallest structure that you So in this specific experiment, what they did is they brought four teams and they give them each 18 minutes, same ingredients and say, build the tallest structure. Now, the interesting thing is that those four teams were made up of different types of people. The first team was made up of CEOs. The second one were lawyers. The third ones were recently graduated MBAs. And the fourth one was kindergartners. And you know, the, the researchers are videotaping each team to see how they're working on it. And it's a team of four. Now, if you were to bet who built the tallest structure, who would you think it is? Some people might say the lawyers, the CEOs, or, or maybe more the MBA graduates. In fact, it was the kindergartner. The reason for that is because when the kindergartners sat down to work, there was no fear of failure whatsoever. They immediately started building and started failing with no fear of judgment. And they taught each other, they talked with each other, and they help each other. As a result, they built the highest structure. The team that performed the worst was actually the recently graduated MBAs. Because when the researchers observed them and how they worked, they spent the first 10 to 12 minutes out of the 18 minutes just establishing themselves, trying to you know gain power and influence. I graduated from this school. Oh, I graduated from that school. Where are you? What is your area of expertise or finance or strategy? It was all jockeying for power. It was all who's going to be the leader of the team because they were all afraid afraid of failing and afraid of being judged by the other. And that's why they only started messing up with the ingredients for the last six, seven minutes. Because of that, they failed and they didn't build a, a tall structure. So the, the lesson from that is that the kindergartners had what we call psychological safety. And psychological safety, as the research of, of Amy Edmondson from Harvard Business School shows, is whether your team members feel comfortable speak, voicing concerns, pushing back at your ideas as a leader. Now, for a leader that is considering improving psychological safety at their team, some of the suggestions that the research shows, one of them is actually for the leader themselves to share some of their previous failures or mishaps. Start with that. Tell your team members, I'm not perfect, because you know what? They already know that. <laughs> they know you're not perfect. So there's no point trying to pretend. Tell them I'm not perfect. I've messed up in the past. These are some of the mistakes I've made before, and that's how I learned from them. When you do that, you establish a kind of environment where people are like, oh, okay, my leader just admitted messing up. So next time I mess up, I'm going to admit it, and I'm going to take it straight to the leader and say, listen, there's a problem in here. We have an issue with this product or with this service, and I caught it early so we can still do something about it. So they're not going to hide problems and mistakes from you till they become big. Another practice that I highly recommend for leaders to improve psychological safety 
is something that I mentioned earlier and, and that we worked on with Jared is to speak last rather than speak first in a meeting, especially when it's time to make a decision. So rather than lead the meeting with saying, guys, I think we're going to go with product A versus product B. Start with, I have some ideas of my own, but first I want to hear your thoughts and let them share their thoughts before you influence what they're going to say. Because if you're the leader, the person with most authority, most power in the room, you say product A, everyone else is going to say product A most of the time, unless if you have some real brave souls in there on your team. So when you don't share your opinion, you allow others to share their thoughts. Maybe after you hear all of the input, you're going to change your mind as a leader, which is okay. New evidence emerges, you change your mind. That's what we call intellectual humility. Are you willing to demonstrate some of your bravery and courage by entering the My Quest for the Best lightning round? Yeah, great. When you first came to the United States, you wanted to study and become a teacher. What was one of the favorite songs that you remember from that period of time? This was late 90s, and I am a child of the 80s and the 90s and pop music of that time. So one of my favorite songs at that time, which remains my favorite song till now, is is a song by a group called AHA. Some of the listeners were related to AHA. I think it was a group out of Norway or Denmark or something like that. They had this great song called Take On Me. It, it's not really the lyrics of the songs that were deep in any way. It's just the music was so interesting and, and was so new at that point in time. Every time I, I listened to that song, I remember my time coming to the U.S. and being homesick the first few months and being in Minnesota in the cold. It brings back some good memories. And to this day, when it comes out on the radio, my kids know. No, it's my favorite songs and, and we all sing it together. What's a tool or system you use to help you stay on track and productive with all of the different things going on in your life, with your teaching, with um, executive education, with your executive coaching, and of course your writing? This applies to me, but it applies to any busy professional who is ambitious, wants to achieve great things. It's about planning your time way ahead of time. I look at my calendar one or two weeks ahead of time, but rather six or eight weeks ahead of time. And I block time on my calendar for thinking, reflection, and writing. Because if you don't, what are you going to end up doing is you're going to end up scheduling calls and meetings every other hour. For example, you're going to have a call at eight and one at 10 and one at 12 and one at two. So what that does is it takes away your ability to sit down and think and focus. Whereas if I block the morning, like I did this morning, right now we're, we started this conversation at 10 a.m. Central Time. So I had blocked 7.30 to 10 for deep thinking and reflection and writing. Because of that, now I'm able to schedule the calls all and chunk them in the afternoon or in later hours. That's one practice I have put in place to allow me to still have the calls that I need to have. And anyone who is working with other people obviously needs to have these kind of meetings in person or, or on Zoom. But block some time in the morning for yourself to get your one work done. You've wrote about one of the most important people in your professional life was your mentor at University of Minnesota. How has this influence still shown up in your life currently. This is Dr. Jim Bigon. Jim was a professor at the University of Minnesota that I met in my first semester coming to the U.S. And, and doing a PhD in healthcare administration. I wanted to take a course in management and organizational theory, but Jim offered that course only every other year. The year I was in was the off year. So I went to him and I said, this is my dilemma. I want to take the course now so that I'm not delayed. He said, yeah, I will offer the course to you. I said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, I'll give you 
a independent study one-on-one, just you and me. That was the best experience I've ever had as a student because Jim gave me readings. Every other week we would meet in his office or sometimes in the cafeteria or outdoors. We would discuss what I just read. That's when I fell in love with management and organizations. And I learned so much from him because of these meetings and the potential that he saw in me. He ended up hiring me as his research assistant, his teaching assistant, his co-teacher. And we still have a friendship and a mentorship relationship going on till now. This was 20 years later. What I really admired about Jim was the way he approached his work with so much integrity and so much pride. Every single class session was something to prepare for ahead of time, to put an agenda in place, to show his respect for the students. Then he followed up after the class with notes of appreciation, with commanding the students for the good work that they're doing. I learned so much from him. And and to this day, in many professional situations, I ask myself, what would Jim do in this situation? That gives me the answer most of the time. He had such a high bar, continues to inspire you 20 years later. Tell me, what are three or four sources that you would recommend that a manager who wants to become more effective at being ambitious should read, follow, listen to? Blogs, podcasts, books. What are two or three, let's say? We're going to start with the two obvious ones, right? This podcast and my book. Then I would recommend for anyone who has not read Good to Great yet, to go back to that original classical management book, because this is really where the idea for this leadership style came from based on research. And leaders who haven't read that, Jim Collins and his team did this huge research study and found out that great organizations are led by these level five leaders. That's their term for what I call now ambitious leaders. These are the leaders who were very humble, but fiercely determined to achieve great success for their teams and for their organizations. So I would say definitely that would be one source of that people should read. In terms of another podcast, there is a great podcast called The Look and Sound of Leadership by Tom Henschel. Tom is an executive coach and every podcast is a short case study from his coaching and then lessons learned. And Tom is amazing and the podcast is real, but very practical. So that would be my other recommendation. Is there a blog or online journal that you follow that you think would be beneficial for managers listening? I'm going to go a little bit traditional with this one and say Harvard Business Review. Sure, there's so many other sources out there. For me personally, it's the one that I go back to very regularly. The reason for that is because most of the articles are evidence-based. And and that's something that appeals to me as a professor and as a researcher is I like the advice that is based on experience and do this because that worked for me, but I prefer the advice that is based on science and evidence. Since you evaluate advice and results regularly, what would you say is one of the worst pieces of advice you ever received? Not that you followed it, but that you received. This is advice that is typically given to young people. It goes like this, follow your passion, follow your passion. That's what they tell us. Just do something you're passionate about. It's very well intentioned, but it turns out to be bad advice. The reason The reason why I think it's bad advice is that because many young people don't know what their passion is yet. Someone had told me when I was 18, follow your passion, which many people did. I had no clue what my passion was. When I was 18, I didn't know anything about writing books or speaking or executive coaching. Yet these are my passions right now. That's the work that I wake up every morning so excited to do. So the reason why I think it's bad advice is we need to tell people, Go out there and try a bunch of different things till you find your passion. 
you can't pursue your passion as an 18 year old. Maybe there's a 5% of the population that know that they want to become a doctor or an engineer or a podcaster when they're eight years old. These are the minority. These are the exception. Most of us don't know what we want at that age. So I would say, rather than advise people to follow fashion, say, go and work in all kinds of different things. Expose yourself to so many different aspects. Then you're going to find out what is the one thing you're passionate about or several things you're passionate about. You can focus on those. What would you say in the last year or so has been the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction? Oh, by far it is spending less time on social media and less time following the news. Obviously, you still have to know what's going on in the country and in the world. I realized that most of that was a waste of time. I'd rather spend more time reading books. I'd rather spend more time listening to podcasts like yours, learning from great leaders, listening to what the research says, rather than knowing so-and-so's opinion on what this politician did or what that celebrity did. So I'd say definitely that's a huge change that I've seen and I've gained so much time. It's amazing how you can redirect your time into more productive ways. Amir, I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. I learned so much from you about the lesson and model that your mother gave in being able to shift perspective that equipped you to look at life from many different points of view. We talked about what it means to be a high performer and how combining humility and ambition in whatever way makes sense will look different than each leader. But the combination of having those two elements in your life and approach is possible to add and it greatly benefits you to the degree that you explore it. We talked about the example of Jared, who was a hospital administrator looking to become a COO and needed to increase the humility in his life and his leadership style in order to succeed that way. We looked at the examples and contrast between Jared and Steve Jobs in being able to contrast the lessons that could be learned and taken away from them. We talked about Rachel, who was an example of someone who really cared about her team and being instituted a one hour in order to make it easy for people to connect with each other. We talked about the marshmallow challenge in being able to create this. And what was important wasn't necessarily who had the most education, but where the psychological safety was created in order to allow each of those four groups to succeed. As a personal follow-up, I would love to see the experiment repeated, yet each of those groups gets to see the others as they're actually building their towers, because I think that would build in some humility <laughs> with the other groups. For these reasons and so many more, I enjoyed speaking with you, learning from you, and having you join me on my quest for the best. Hey, the pleasure was mine. I really enjoyed it. had a lot of fun. Before we say goodbye for now, where can we find out more about you and your work online? Go to humbitiousbook.com and you're going to find everything. We're going to link to humbitiousbook.com, your social media, other places to buy the book, and all of your work on our show notes to make it super easy for people listening and to find out more about Humbitious and what you're up to. So Amir Kasi, author of Humbitious, The Power of Low Ego, High Drive Leadership, I want to thank you once again for joining me on My Quest for the Best. Thank you so much, Bill. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review My Quest for the Best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. 
You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.